Right now, we are in a race against time. Languages around the world are going extinct, and along with them, the cultures that they represent are disappearing. In some provinces of Canada, only about 4% of Indigenous people are fluent in their native language. Today, we'll talk with an award-winning teacher about how she is working to save the Nahewak language and culture of her people. And welcome to episode 15 of the Education for a Better World podcast. I'm Mike Soskal. And I'm Diane Smokorowski. Each week, we will bring you conversations with some of the most dynamic thought leaders in education. This week's episode is sponsored by GoToScience, a tool that allows our youngest learners the opportunity to learn by going on adventures without leaving their classroom. We know that education will be the driving force for a bright, optimistic future. On each show, We'll introduce you to innovative ideas, we'll stretch your thinking, and help you see ways to empower students to affect positive change in the world. We are thrilled that you are coming along with us on this journey. Let's dream big. Belinda Daniels is a Naheu from Sturgeon First Lake Nation, Saskatchewan. She's the founder of the Nahewik Summer Language Experience, a summer camp held annually out in the land. She's a published academic writer, a teacher, a mentor, and an award-winning educator. Belinda currently teaches Indigenous Studies, Cultural Arts, and Nahewin Core Language classes for the Saskatoon Public Schools Division. Belinda, welcome to the show. Hi. So to set the stage, I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about the history of Indigenous education in North America and how we got to the point where we're at now. Well, wow. How long do we have? (laughs) Well, we have about a half hour total. Okay. So before settlers arrived, before early Europeans arrived, um, indigenous peoples of Turtle Island, North America, had their own way of learning and being and doing and seeing. There was already a traditional system of learning happening. Teachings were very... um, were pivotal in um, being passed on to children. Everybody's job was to educate children, not only the immediate family, but the extended family members as well. People had a natural curiosity about their surroundings, especially about their lands. Languages too were very um, predominant amongst Indigenous peoples because there was just so many on Turtle Island. Very, everyone was very multilingual and, and there was also all kinds of literacies. People were very much involved in um, not only storytelling, which is kind of stereotypical, I would, I would say, um, but people, people practiced writing. We had petroglyphs, petrographs, rock paintings, hide paintings, wampum belts, beading was used as a type of literacy. And then, of course, later on, um, other forms of writing were being invented. So this is how it kind of was before um, the arrival of Europeans in 1492, around that era, I suppose. And then education was very abrupt, I, I guess very abrupt and very, very hostile in regards to this education system, I suppose, that we have now. I think the first residential school in Canada opened up around the 1880s. We call them residential schools in Canada. I believe in the United States they were referred to as boarding schools. I'm pretty sure they evolved 
started being created around the same time for the same purposes in regards to assimilation. So in Canada, these, these schools were being built and mainly being run by missionaries and uh, the churches and the colonial government. And the last one just closed in 1996. So it's not that long ago. And what was it like for, for children that were forced to go to these schools? Oh, I know the story really well. I was just listening to some, um, to some videos and to some podcasts just the other day in regards to these, to these residential schools. Right now in Canada, we have this whole truth and reconciliation dialogue happening, I suppose, where um, the government is sorry in regards to these residential schools, but they were very harsh, hostile, um, very inhumane. There are still running records and running numbers to how many children went missing in these schools. So the climate was not at all like what the children were exposed to in their own homes. Um, it was very much the opposite, very traumatic. And so if the, these schools have been operating since like the 1880s up until 1996, that's, so, that's about 125 years of like transmission being broken and fragmented and lost and children no longer recognizing uh, where they come from, the languages that they spoke. It wasn't a friendly place environment for sure. So we've had these residential schools, right? And then in the 1970s, uh, things I suppose started to change. People started remembering the treaties being, being written between the Crown and uh, First Nations peoples in Canada. And this is around the late 1800s, maybe earlier. Uh, we have numbered treaties in Canada from 1 to 11. So in these treaties, it was promised that Indigenous peoples could still continue to practice their own type of education. So residential schools was never a part of this um, agreement. So around the 1970s, Indigenous peoples were wanting to take control of their own education on their own, on their own homes, in their home communities. And so people started gathering and getting together and creating a revolution in regards to, well, this is what we want to do. And so one of the very first schools, I suppose, in Canada and Saskatchewan that opened up in regards to an Indigenous-run school was James Smith. James Smith Reserve started their own school, and it's, I believe it started in someone's house. And that created a chain reaction right across other First Nations communities in Canada, where schools were being built in people in First Nations communities. However, that being said, sure, we had schools in our home communities, but the curriculum itself is, is very much run by the provincial government. There's a lot of adaptation within the curriculum. But again, that curriculum is written from a mindset that is not from an from an Indigenous way of thinking. There's still some planning going on within that. Slowly but surely though, things are being changed. Same with um, universities. Curriculums are to teach to the Indigenous narrative uh, and share this history of what was, what was happening in Canada while Canada was being created, right? Um, so that's pretty, that's all relatively new too and, and also exciting. But I also want to mention what else is happening right now. 
is there's like this renaissance in regards to this indigenous awakening to land and to language and land-based education that's been happening too um, within my own province of Saskatchewan. Um, so that's also really exciting where people are just no longer putting up with sending their children to mainstream education. But again, going back home, creating this new way of, well, not new, but going back to the old way of thinking and being and doing and remembering land. So tell me about one of the projects or the experiences that students would have with some of your curriculum design. Things that I do right now, like in my typical classroom, are things like um, gardening. Uh, we have a massive garden in Mount Royal Collegiate. Um, we are a inner city um, school in Saskatoon. We have the highest indigenous population of almost just under about 800, I suppose. Um, so that's been going for the last four or five years. I'm always trying to get children back to land. So last year we had a project with grade threes in a First Nations community where we planted about a thousand trees with my high school students and children in grade three. Other things that we do is uh, going back to the traditional form of Cree writing, um, which is not like your typical alphabet. We call it syllabics. So children get to exposed to that, they know the story behind that, and then they learn how to write that. And so then we started doing graffiti, but with, with the traditional form of Cree writing, and talking about where that came from and what, why is that important and how symbolic that is to identity. Um, so these are just some examples. Um, there's, again, there's so many. Belinda, maybe talk a little bit about your own education growing up. Uh, I was raised by my grandparents, and so whatever I have, whatever tiny remnants that I have of being a Nehio in regards to my identity is because of them. And so I'm, con I'm conscious about that, and I want to keep that alive. And so things that I've done with my grandparents, who were my first teachers, Things were like, again, uh, our work ethics very much depended like on our, on our livelihood, on our lives, because we had to go and get our own water. <laughs> and I'm not that old, because uh, we didn't have running water on our First Nations community. Um, we had to go and chop down our own trees and our own wood because we didn't have heating. So we did things like that. Uh, my grandparents exposed me to things like berry picking, all kinds of berry picking like mint leaves, sweet grass, things like that, like red willow. Um, so I was exposed to things like that. I was exposed to the language. I was exposed to the old people, listening to old people and their conversations and the tones and the intonation of their voices and their stories resonated within me growing up. And then I started elementary school in my home community. And again, we were still very much a part of the land. So I remember um, things like um, snaring and tracking rabbits, learning how to snare rabbits, learning how to snare fish, catch fish like in the river, um, things like that. We did field trips like that too. And we'd also go swimming in the lake um, and went for walks in the, in the forest, went skiing, skating on the lake. Uh, those things were like normal, normalized growing up. And I didn't really see that once I moved away from my home community coming into the city. None of those things existed. 
what I'm doing as an educator isn't new, although people think it's like cutting edge education. I'm just like, it's, it's what my grandparents did. It's what my parents did. It's what I did as a child. And I think somehow we, we chose to ignore the Indigenous ways of doing and thinking and learning and went on with this other way of, of being educated. And I think we're seeing the repercussions of that now. We have a very high dropout rate when it comes to Indigenous high school students. Kids are not meeting the, the grade 12 requirements to graduate. Our home communities are, are needing a lot of help. Tell me about a student who has reconnected. Yeah, so our school, Mount Royal Collegiate, we do have just under 800 kids. The majority of them are First Nations, about 80%, I would say. We have, when, it, when I come, when I think about it with my own students, high school students, kids becoming aware of what they missed out on and, and who they are. Yeah, there's plenty of stories that I can share. The only, how that actually comes about in my own experience is language. I teach language. I teach my own language. And language is very becoming. It connects you to your identity. There's history. There's philosophy. Um, the answers are within the language. And so when kids hang out with me for a semester, two semesters, two or three years, they definitely start getting a sense of, what it means to be Nehio, um, what it means to be a part of a collective known as the Nehiowak people. And I share all these success stories. I share traditional stories. I share stories that are still also very, very relevant. Um, people refer to these as myths or as um, legends, but they're not. They're real to us. They're sacred. Um, and so... I try to correct those types of um, stereotypes again. And so I do have children, high school students, adolescents, who gain a sense of identity through language. But lots of young men, lots of young women definitely do gain a sense of who they are through language. But we also have other practices too at our school in regards to um, like dancing, drumming and singing, drama and role play. Our system has a, a bigger um, ensemble of dancers who create their own regalia, uh, their dancing outfits, um, and go on tour. So that's definitely very helpful. Yeah, so we do, we do have those types of success stories, but at the same time, the teachers themselves have to understand who they are and where they come from. Because sometimes we do get swallowed up in the mainstream narrative where people weren't raised maybe the way I was and grew up in the city, but and, and they too are still figuring out who they are. So it all depends on the teacher too. Before we continue this great conversation with Belinda, let me take a few seconds to tell you about our sponsor. GoToScience is an amazing tool that allows pre-K through second grade students to be engaged with every area of the curriculum. Students will go on virtual adventures, they'll engage in inquiry, and they'll publish the results. Every month, we give away a free one-year subscription to GoToScience. To win this month, simply share the podcast website with your followers on either Twitter or Facebook. Make sure to tag us so that we see your post. Our website is ed4betterworld.com. I also want to remind you, 
that Diane and I are available for keynotes and workshops to inspire your group and help your teachers incorporate global learning, inquiry, and PBL into their lessons. We empower teachers so that they can empower students. Send us an inquiry on our website. Now let's get back to the show. A couple years ago, I was speaking with a Navajo teacher who told me that within education systems, majority populations almost always impose their values on minority populations within those systems. And there are, there are plenty of teachers who are teaching within systems like that that have perhaps indigenous or, or native students that are in their classrooms, but not, are, are not the majority in there. What advice would you give to those teachers to be more culturally responsive to those students that they have in their classrooms? I like that question. To teach to the students and not to the class, to create a new dialogue, to start from a new position, to throw out like the textbook, I suppose, and, and ask those frank questions in regards to, so what do we know about this place? What do we know about this land that we sit on? How did the city become the name of the city? Because um, there's so many um, cities and provinces and states with indigenous names. Look into that and find the history of that. What happened in these territories during the War of 1812? Because um, I do, I know very much in regards to history with the states and Canada that a lot of Indigenous peoples took part in creating the settlement that we have now. So look into those stories. Bring in new resources, uh, new novels, new videos. Throw out the old 1970s resources. Cause there's, there's new and more truthful uh, stuff that are, that are out there. Um, being created by our own people too, being created by either Indigenous peoples or Native American peoples, setting the record straight. So look and see and ask questions. Who wrote this book? Who wrote this textbook? Who wrote this curriculum? Um, ask those deep questions and figure out where did these ideas come from? Who did they come from? Whose story are they telling? I would tell teachers, those, ask those very questions amongst themselves. And when you and when and if you don't know something in regards to indigenous history create a friendship create an ally try to hook up with someone or mentor with someone and be truthful i suppose be truthful and just say you know what hey hey mike you know what i really don't know a lot about where you come from and and how long you've been here and would you mind me hanging out with you and asking you a few questions or going for coffee sometime or going for lunch during our lunch break, things like that, being open-minded. Yeah, those are lots of suggestions. And anti-racist education is also now starting to play a part within our province, within our, within our country. And so find out about anti-racist education. You guys have Tim Wise, who's really big in the States. He's been here a couple of times, schooling our own teachers. Uh, and he's got a lot to say in regards to anti-racist education. But we also have people here, too, who talk about that same um, topic. And our school division is now working in regards to, in regards to learning about what is anti-racist education. How is it helpful? You spoke that the teachers in your community are also discovering who they are. What would be a perfect day for teachers to go? Um, you know, we have 
we have professional learning days where we generally look at data and that sort of thing, but we don't look at the data of who we are. So what would be a great professional learning day for your community of teachers if you could design it? Oh, perfect. That's a perfect question. <laughs> um, the reason why I say that is because um, I've been an educator, educator for 20 years. I do my own um, summer language institutes, I suppose. Um, I call them the Nihilwak language experiences, where people, either Cree or not, um, indigenous or not, come and learn how to speak Cree, how to uh, create a relationship with the land. Um, that would be the perfect pro professional development for, for teachers who are wanting to know more, right? And so I created a not-for-profit here in Saskatoon called the Nihilwak uh, Language Experience Not-for-Profit. And I'm trying to um, create an awareness where we're in Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan is Cree. Saskatoon is Cree. We are the biggest population in Canada when it comes to languages. Um, have the same, um, I guess, respect for French as you would for Cree. So right now, that's what I'm trying to implement. And we do have a lot of teachers, whether they're First Nations or not, come to language camp, come and learn about these ways of knowing and being and doing. And they come and learn language. Not only teachers, but nurses, professionals, doctors, um, lawyers, police officers, we're coming to learn the language of Cree. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, it's a lot of work. Um, I've been doing that for about 15 years. And how many participants come in the summer? When I first started out, we've only maybe had like about 10 people. Uh, now we have anywhere, well, now I have to create more than one experience, right? Uh, our last one, I'm, I think I counted and I had 37 participants, um, which is a lot for us to handle. And because of the, the interest is so high, I don't know if you know this, but it's the year of international indigenous languages, 2019, right across the globe. And so every month I have a, I call it a mini language experience for one week where anybody can come and feel what it's like at Cree camp in July. And because these language camps are so popular, we'll have a language experience in July and then one in August. How do you see people change the way they think when they learn their native language? Um, I'm doing some research on that right now with my team of teachers. It's very, very becoming. Um, like I'm a second language adult learner and I'm, I do work with fluent um, Cree speaking teachers. And then I do have one non-Indigenous person on my team because I'm looking for the perspective of what, what's it like to be a white settler coming to learn Cree. So I have all these different dynamics um, happening. So it's very, very becoming if you're Indigenous. People are very, very emotional when they're Indigenous um, when it comes to language because language was so suppressed. People were punished. Um, for 125 years. It's a very emotional process. Um, and I can speak that to that personally, but I also see that too in people coming to learn. So it's very healing. Language is very healing. 
language is it's finding your way back home i suppose but within here um not a physical place we find these connections of oh this is why our grandparents did did this practice or did this so there's lots of connections happening um in regards to people coming to learn and then i have yeah so i have a, a friend who's a settler who's also learning Cree and she, she finds it too very, very humbling and very, very um, insightful. And um, she mentioned she's so grateful for indigenous peoples when it comes to the love for language, because she said, for me, there's no connection the way there's a connection for you when it comes to land. She goes, I don't know the stories of like Saskatoon, how is it called Saskatoon? What are the songs because of Saskatoon? Which is referring to a berry, by the way. She goes, I don't have those same connections, so I probably wouldn't lay my life, on, lay my life down on the line for Saskatoon if a pipeline was to come through. She said, but um, I'm so grateful for people who know the stories of these mountains and these hills and these rivers and these valleys. Um, there's stories there. There's a history there. People are buried there. Um, there's ancient burial grounds that are still remembered. So those are the kinds of things that happen inside people's minds when they learn Cree and learn the history and learn the stories and the philosophy within the language. There's lots of answers and solutions within our language. Um, so you can see a fire being stirred within people going back to the going back to indigenous languages and then people who are wanting to learn them you mentioned there's a renaissance and i can feel that in the way that you're describing learning of the language and the institutes and things and as young people being exposed to this and and having it completely wrapped around them and their culture and their people and and the language learning and even the school do you see a different passion, a different drive for the next generation coming up to preserve the Cree people? Definitely. I see it within my own communities. I see it within other Indigenous communities. I definitely see a higher interest, a higher awareness when it comes to languages and the connection to land. So that definitely is there. You have, we have way more Indigenous educators now going back for their master's, going back for their doctoral degrees, and wanting to help change the system. That's definitely alive and well. But of course, there's still obstacles because you don't see a whole lot of Indigenous um, educators in leadership when it comes to like directors and superintendents, even principals within mainstream education. There are in First Nations communities and also provincial um, with the education, with the Ministry of Education. People have to be willing to give up some of that power if they ever want to see Indigenous communities thrive and grow and, and, and become their own drivers. That's a really powerful statement. Mm -hmm. So one last question, Belinda, and it's the question that we ask all of our guests at the end of the podcast. Uh, and we're going to make you do this in just one or two sentences. If you could change education in some way to make the world a better place, what would you do? Well, definitely my answer would be if I could change education the way it is now. Get out of the classroom, get out onto the land, 
protect and preserve what we have left of like wildlife species, marine life, go back to basics, try to figure out how to use energy in a different way. We can't go on with the fossil fuels because it's, it's going to kill us as human beings. This industrial way of education, um, I don't think is doing us any justice. Go back, let's go back to the way it used to be, back to living off the land, loving the environment that we're in. Thank you for joining us today. Please visit our website at edforbetterworld.com. That's ed, E-D, the number four, betterworld.com for show notes and to learn more about inviting Mike and I to lead a workshop for your teachers. And don't forget to check the other podcast-related goodies. We want to thank Belinda Daniels for being a guest on today's show. Credit for music on the show goes to Midair Machine. Join us next week as we talk with Elisa Guerra, who is named the best educator in Latin America. She'll tell us how she became a teacher by accident and how the schools she started are teaching global citizenship. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and that it gave you some new ideas and perspectives. Through education and action, we can create a better world. Until we're together again, continue to dream big and affect positive change.